TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. The following program has been pre-recorded. What does the future hold for St. Louis and how do we get there? This is Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Welcome into our show about St. Louis innovation and really what's next for the St. Louis area. And do do we have some optimism for you? It's tempered, of course, because this is St. Louis. But Travis, we've got another unicorn in the St. Louis area. We are just, uh, we have a, is it safe to say we have a stable of them? Are the unicorns going to replace the Clydesdales at Bush Stadium? Ooh, it's like we're breeding unicorns here. Not a bad thing to breed. Benson Hill, by the way, we should say a unicorn is a startup that's grown from, uh, you know how they are, two people in a garage or in a co-working space, to a billion-dollar valuation. And the first was Nerdy Varsity Tutors, a um, virtual learning company. And the second, we're going to talk with folks from Benson Hill, which is an ag tech company, a food tech company that's here in St. Louis. Yeah, and it's and look at the the you know look at the spectrum of those right. We have online technology for learning, and then we have food tech, plant based food uh, type technology, and the ag tech space. And those are two uh, two different unicorns. And then we're going to jump into another area that St. Louis is working on, cybersecurity. There's a new cybersecurity center at Cortex. We'll talk with Josh Jaffe about that. Yeah, and I, what I love about you know this is coming on the heels of. Uh, you know, the, the pipeline shut down and the hack and the uh, people filling up their their cars with gas around the corner or filling up plastic bags with gas. So we're talking, I think cybersecurity is top of mind for a lot of people right now. And then we're going to wrap up the show with, uh, as I mentioned, enthusiasm tempered maybe a little bit because the CEO of Centene is again sounding off about potentially leaving the St. Louis area. I mean, we start the show talking about growth and we we're going to wrap up the show with potential contraction, but this is this is something that, I mean, we have to address this, right? I mean, uh, this is a major, not only a major employer, uh, they have a pretty significant presence in some of our startup spaces as, as well. I mean, Centene has a big presence down in Cortex, where they're connecting with early stage companies. Uh, them leaving the region would mean that's a that's not just a loss from current for of current employees potentially, but it's a loss of some of those connections in that pipeline to growth. So the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good, Benson Hill, the bad, Centene, potentially, potentially. And the ugly, cybersecurity right now. That's all coming up on this edition of Nothing Impossible. Now back to Nothing Impossible on the voice of St. Louis, KMOX. 
Well, St. Louis startup is going public. It's food technology company Benson Hill. They're doing a SPAC transaction. And joining us right now is Matt Crisp, who's the CEO of Benson Hill. Thank you for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me, Michael. So first of all, an introduction. What does Benson Hill do? We've heard about your journey from small startup to now more than a billion dollars of enterprise value. What is Benson Hill and what is your CropOS platform? Sure, sure. So so Benson Hill is a St. Louis-based food technology company uh, that taps into the natural genetic diversity of plants. We use a combination of data science, food science, and plant science uh, to develop better seed that ultimately make better food and ingredients. And when I say better, I mean ingredients and food that are better tasting, uh, that are more nutritious, uh, that are more sustainable, and that really importantly as well are more affordable. And how did the company grow from a small startup just to getting into this research at the Danforth Plant Science Center to now the, uh, the value is $1.35 billion? Well, I mean, St. Louis is our home. Um, we we grew the company here starting in 2012 when it was founded, uh, in part out of the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center here, uh, which is the largest independent not-for-profit plant research science center in the world. And uh, we grew the business here, you know, principally because of, in part, the Danforth and the infrastructure that it offered, but also the plant science talent uh, that that's in our community. Uh, and then thirdly, we had, and very importantly, uh, some really early uh, investment capital in the company, some some backing that allowed us to effectively start fueling the uh, the engine of growth. And Matt, that's something that uh, people may think about if they come from the coasts and they're wondering, all right, am I going to get the access to capital that I need if I move to St. Louis? So what kind of, uh, can you expand more on that and some some reassurance for those founders that uh, there is investment to be found in St. Louis? Oh, certainly. I, I mean, it's, it's actually pretty remarkable. We have been able to attract uh, investment from the coast, being in the Midwest, in part because we're in close proximity to a lot of our grower partners and our customers. Um, but there's a lot of capital and access to capital here as well. I mean, one of the the largest supporters of Benson Hill through every stage of our growth has been the iSelect Fund led by Carter Williams, um, you know, from seed stage all the way into and through the recent transaction. Uh, remarkable organization with a vision um, that spans food and ag and is really a square fit for companies like ours. But you've got a, a, a dozens of others, uh, individuals and firms that have been supporters of the company. Um, BioGenerator and BioSTL very early on, uh, you know, critical, uh, you know, did critical diligence on the company. Lewis and Clark Ventures co-led our Series B. Uh, and I won't go into all of them, but suffice it to say that yeah, we have had really, really terrific support from a capital formation standpoint, which, as you pointed out, super critical for a company like ours. And Matt, uh, can you talk about how an ecosystem works and how this almost uh, pays it forward when there's a startup that has a huge success, all the investors then get to reap that success and then usually reinvest that into smaller startups. And the hope is that they grow and the cycle continues. Certainly. I mean, it, it, you, you used a great word, ecosystem. And, and the ecosystem isn't just about that financing capital, but you know, to my earlier comment, it's about, it's about talent and it's about infrastructure and it's about a commitment uh, on the part of the community to help support early stage entrepreneurs and uh, you know, supply the types, of, uh, you know, the types of resources that are needed to, to, to organize and, and to take off. 
Um, and so some of those are financial, some of those are not. Um, but to your point, you know, we are experiencing a point in our life cycle where there's some liquidity created. And I certainly hope that uh, as folks realize the 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 uh, benefit of the investment uh, that they may have made really early on from Benson Hill, that they'll very seriously consider investing it in, in other early stage uh, enterprises that you know also have big visions, maybe not just in food and agriculture, but in a number of other very interesting areas of innovation that exist here in the St. Louis community. And Matt, when it comes to the breeds of crops that Benson Hill deals in, what's the what's the market for those? Because we keep hearing about plant-based meat alternatives. Is that driving a lot of the market for your products? Well, it, it's certainly a really important area of growth where, you know, it's not often that you see 20, 40, 60, 100 plus percent year over year growth in certain market categories. That's that's a that's a generational kind of opportunity in food. Um, and certainly, you know, the, the market that Benson Hill is positioned to help serve in that regard um, is, is not huge today, but it is growing at an incredible clip. Uh, it's expected to more than 10x this decade. Benson Hill's really positioned in many respects to be the, the picks and shovels of, of this alternative plant-based movement. But it doesn't stop there. There's a global demand for protein, and we're very, very well positioned with our soybean and our yellow pea portfolio to also fuel innovative crop development for the animal feed markets and poultry, nursery swine, aquaculture, uh, domestically and internationally. Um, so we, we've, we've been able to develop a, a portfolio of products, many of which are already de-risked and that are going to market now, but a long pipeline of products uh, that, are, that are in the hopper and that we're using technology to develop and advance. Would you say that uh, most of the focus is on food ingredients or uh, could some of these make their way through to the grocery store shelves? Certainly. Well, this year, about half of our revenue is expected to come from uh, our ingredients business segment and about half of it from our fresh business segment, which produces fresh fruits and vegetables that actually are delivered in the grocery store. Today, Benson Hill doesn't commercialize our proprietary genetics in the vegetable arena, but that is part of our medium and long range plans. Um, in the in the near term, we expect to see 50 to 100 percent year over year growth in the ingredients category. And um, so certainly it, it is it is in part fueled by the alternative plant based protein movement, but also a number of other segments that that we're really excited about. And soybean uh, is is really the first crop where there's a wave of new products coming to market. So why is now the time for Benson Hill to look at going uh, public? And uh, can we call you another St. Louis area unicorn with this value more than a billion dollars? <laughs> well, I suppose you can. Uh, you know, we're we're a um, we're really proud of of this moment. This is a major milestone for us. But uh, as I had an opportunity to talk about with our team today, it's a milestone. Um, this is a stop on a journey that uh, we have. Um, to execute our vision and our mission to uh, advance the pace of innovation in food, to deliver great products, uh, to tap into that natural genetic diversity, and 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 going public and forming the the type of capital that we formed in collaboration with Star Peak Two, our SPAC partner uh, here as part of this transaction, will really help fuel additional growth. It'll fuel additional inv- innovation and investment in crop OS in our supply chains. It'll help us better serve our customers um, and even expand into into additional markets as well. So the time was right to do it. The right partner presented itself, 
And, um, and, and, you know, this is, we're really fortunate to be in this position with a great team helping execute against our plans. We're talking with Matt Crisp, who's the CEO of Benson Hill, which, as you just heard, is going public through what's called a SPAC transaction, a special purpose acquisition company. And Matt, uh, for folks who are in their cars and they're saying, I've heard about these SPACs, but I, I don't really understand it. What does it mean? Can you describe, first of all, this process and how it's diff- different from the typical IPO, but also why is this the best route for Benson Hill? Well, certainly. So a, a SPAC, or as you said, a, a special purpose acquisition company is a, is a publicly listed organization uh, that seeks to invest its trust capital. Uh, it's in some respects called a shell company. That might be a common term that folks have heard. Um, but to combine its capital as an investment, essentially, with a, a, a good um uh, growth opportunity, a, a, a really exciting, promising private organization. And, and by closing that combination or merger, uh, essentially that private company is lifted into the public market with a, a much stronger balance sheet than it might have had. So it helps a, 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 a private company fuel additional growth. The process provides more, more certainty. Uh, in other words, we, we know when we move into a transaction, what is the valuation of this transaction going to be? Um, we can talk to the market ahead of time and disclose confidential information as we've done through the pipe process, which is a, a private investment in a public equity, oftentimes a, an investment a vehicle that accompanies a, a, a SPAC transaction and essentially helps validate the valuation of the company as it enters into the public market. So the combination of, of these um, these processes provides us more certainty about when we go public, how we go public. Um, and then, you know, to boot, we're getting a great partner in Starpeak, which is really aligned with some of our core goals around sustainability um, in, and, you know, frankly, has been an instrumental part of, of this being a successful transaction. And finally, Matt, uh, what do you expect? How much uh, do you expect to bring in from this uh, offering? And then also, what do you anticipate doing with that, uh, with those proceeds? So the 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 SPAC partner Starpeak Two has about four hundred million dollars in trust, and we've successfully been able to raise about two hundred and twenty five million dollars in that pipe transaction. So assuming no redemptions, uh, that grosses proceeds to Benson Hill in the in, around. $625 million, which is a terrific amount of fuel. Um, as I mentioned, it, Crop OS, sure for Crop Operating System, is our, our innovation engine, um, and we will double down on, on investing in it um, and the combination of data science, plant science, and food science that help drive and advance it to inform uh, our product pipelines. Supply chain investments is another area of, of really significant uh, investment we intend to make to further solidify, you know, product opportunities that we're taking to market. And then, you know, uh, while the while this amount of capital fully funds all of our forecasted business goals, um, it actually does supply additional capital where, you know, perhaps there are some opportunistic areas of investment that we may make even beyond our walls. Well, Matt Crisp is the CEO of Benson Hill, the St. Louis area's next unicorn, and it's in the ag tech space. Thank you so much, Matt, for joining us. Thank you, Michael, for having me. St. Louis Innovation with Michael and Travis. Nothing impossible on KMOX. Cortex is getting into, in a big way, one of the issues that's really impacted a lot of people's lives lately when it comes to technology, Travis. 
Yeah, cybersecurity. And, you know, we, we talk, we've talked a number of times on the show about what's happening over at the NGA uh, and some of the new, uh, I guess, growth opportunities there. Uh, but Cortex is really doubling down and creating uh, a center of gravity as well in this area. Yeah, the Global Center for Cybersecurity at Cortex has officially launched, and we're welcoming in the president of that Global Center for Cybersecurity, Josh Jaffe. Thank you so much for joining us on KMOX. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So how did this Global Center launch, and what's its focus going to be? Yeah, so we are at our core... Uh, a group of security leaders, security professionals, who many of us have our roots in the St. Louis region, but very quickly found that the interest in what we were building grew beyond that. Um, we formed a group here at Cortex with the intention of building a community for security leaders, by security leaders, and with a, a common purpose, a purpose that recognized that we all believe that cybersecurity is rapidly becoming a moral problem that we need to be able to address as a society, not just as individual institutions. And we formed this organization with the intention of helping really build a talent pipeline for all of our organizations to be able to leverage, but also to really broaden and democratize the access to cybersecurity innovations so that we can reach a broader community of innovators, both in the St. Louis region and beyond. So we're at our core, a group of, of security leaders. Many of us lead security enterprises in our day jobs. We also have a series of, uh, of academics and researchers from leading universities in the region, as well as many cybersecurity innovators and cybersecurity startups who all share that same vision and that same purpose and have decided to uh, to join together and launch this global center. Well, and Josh, we've in the news just this week, uh, you know, the hack that took place that uh, has in impacted our fuel sources and people filling up rumors of people filling up plastic bags with fuel. Oh, I've uh, seen the pictures. Is, it, yeah, it exists. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I hope people aren't using their water, their old 1970s waterbeds for that reason also. But, you know, this is a, this is cybersecurity and a hack and, a, and an impact like this changes human behavior almost instantly. I mean, this, it's remarkable to see how people have responded to this. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, I, you know, the, when I described this as a moral problem a minute ago, I, I was doing that purposely. I mean, I think we are very rapidly entering a space where all of us see the reaches of this cybersecurity problem really touching almost every area of our lives. It has the ability to not just impact our own financial uh, institutions and financial solvency through things like data theft or hacking of a, a credit card or a bank account, as we used to see in the old, older days. We still see those problems now, but now we also see pervasive challenges around privacy. We see the growth of different kinds of challenges around things like what is what is truth and what can be believed in deep fakes and the implications of that on the things that we come to learn as individuals and how we interact in society. And now, as you mentioned, sort of, sort of ripped from the headlines, we're seeing this reach even into our critical infrastructure, which, again, wasn't a surprise to a lot of us in the industry, but it certainly when things touch your day-to-day -day life and they impact even your ability to get in your car and drive to work, work or get gas and and just do the basics of life it, it really does become a moral issue in addition to just a technology issue which is which is why we we see it that way
And Josh, are people prepared for this? Do individuals know what they need to do? Are companies doing what they should be doing to prevent, for instance, the pipeline hack that we we saw or some of the other breaches that we've seen? And uh, is the government prepared to respond? We just had a huge uh, cyber attack on some federal agencies late last year. Are, 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 are everybody Is everybody in the position they need to be in to respond to this? I think the answer is we're all trying to get into the position we need to be in. Um, I, I think, as is probably fairly fairly clear to a lot of a lot of folks who are encountering these kinds of problems, here, not all of us have done that done that perfectly. And I think, you know, that that is a really pressing problem to solve. I think the government one is a significant one. I I, I think you know it's it's a hard role for government to be in, um, but certainly it's a critical space. It's a critical domain that needs to have established norms and and have established roles and responses that could be expected. Um, by bad actors from governments when things like this happen. Um, we were fortunate enough at our launch event last week to have um, several very senior former government officials join a, a panel. One of the individuals who joined was a gentleman named Chris Inglis, who was the former um, deputy director of the National Security Agency here in, in this country. And he put an interesting spin on that, that exact question that you asked. He, he said, we, both as governments but also institutions, need to start shifting our thinking away from thinking about what it takes to have secure architectures and secure systems and start thinking about these as defensible architectures and defensible systems. And I, I think that's critically important for us when we think about this because it really it changes the perspective from we built this secure infrastructure, we can sit back, it will always be secure, we can just watch it do its secure thing. And instead puts the onus on, on us, on, on good guys, on enterprises, on innovators in innovation communities like the Cortex, on researchers and, and academics to shift ourselves into an active defense role. And that's, that's the reason why we at the Global Center have taken such a purposeful focus on democratizing access to cybersecurity careers and cybersecurity innovators, um, giving them opportunities to be able to bring forward cybersecurity innovations. If we don't leverage the totality of what exists in sort of the, the opportunity space for people to be able to join this fight on the good guy side, we, we aren't going to be successful in the defense of these institutions that we, we all depend on. We're talking with Josh Jaffe, who's the president of the Global Center for Cybersecurity at Cortex and vice president of cybersecurity and business unit security officer, Dell Technologies. And uh, Josh, uh, there's a quote from the former secretary of state, Condoleezza Rice, about this. She says, for the first time, we have a technology that can be easily weaponized that the government doesn't own. The battle space for cyber is not owned by the government. How does the president see that private public interaction and what does privacy mean? What do you think about that? Well, I, I think it's true, and I certainly wouldn't want to, to, to quibble or, or debate somebody like uh, Condoleezza Rice um, on, a, on a point like this. I think it's certainly true that we don't own the, the domain. Certainly governments don't own the domain. Nobody owns the Internet. But I do think there are parallels to this, which, which really do give us a, a good clue to the way that we can start to behave. One of the examples I often give when having a conversation with um, somebody who brings up a point very much like the one raised by former Secretary Rice that, that you mentioned, is a parallel to the golden age of piracy, which sounds sort of super far removed and not really the most germane maybe at the, at the surface. But if you start to think about what it must have been like to be able to 
to be in a space where all of a sudden travel over the blue ocean, which was ungoverned and unprotected, all of a sudden after some of the uh, the in- increases and advances in shipping, especially from what we now think of as the new world, um, brought with them huge amounts of wealth and treasure across sort of an untraceable, untrackable, dark blue ocean where almost everything was invisible and no one governed that space. Y- you can see the same sort of sort of challenges with that domain emerge into the way governments might think about policing and protecting that so commerce can happen securely and defend defensively. But again, it, it does come back to this notion of even that over the course of of centuries really needed doctrine needed to be built around that. Governments needed to decide how they wanted to police that and then ultimately that became defensible. Not on ships didn't become unsinkable, but Governments and merchant marines work together to make that space defensible and reliable for for trade and for travel. I I think a peril like that is probably awfully, at least in my opinion, awfully close to to direct, uh, as direct a parallel as you'll see. And I think it does offer some clues, really, to the way that we we really need to see both governments and private sector institutions working better together to protect these kinds of um, cyber vulnerabilities. Well, Josh, you mentioned the defensibility, uh, and it makes me think a lot about preparedness. And you know, what are what are some things that uh, that you're seeing in the horizon, especially when you combine uh, private sector with academia, with the startup community, and even government agencies? How are people able to stay ahead of what the black hats are doing? Right, we have the white hat good guys and the black hat bad guys. What are some ways that uh, that you see this sector staying ahead of? challenges as opposed to just responding to them when a new vulnerability surfaces? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think the simple answer is we haven't really done a great job of staying ahead all the time. I think in a lot of cases we do, and those victories aren't very well publicized. It's hard to prove a negative and say something bad didn't happen because we got ahead and stayed ahead. But in a lot of cases, we're we're finding that, in, you know, in the very publicized examples that we're not. And, and that is certainly a challenge. I think you're seeing a ton of growth in the innovation community itself, uh, a lot more capital flowing into to this space, and certainly many innovators getting chance to bring forward good ideas and create solutions that help solve some of these problems. I think that's key. And I think, again, real opportunity to democratize that and make sure that it, it's not just those who have historically had access to capital who have opportunities to create a company to help solve this problem, but we broaden that reach. Um, I think in addition to that, you're also seeing some real partnership between governments and innovators, allowing opportunities for, gov- for, for government to fund research or even partner with innovators to actually sponsor a specific technology or make government technology available for dual use. The, um, the National Security Innovation Network is a partner f- with us at the, the uh, Global Center for Cybersecurity, and they've been doing exactly that. So I think that's a great example of a good solution to the problem. I think a lot more is needed. I think you're also even starting to see for the first time in much bigger and sort of traditional policy debates, things like this infrastructure debate and all the debates around what is infrastructure. Certainly don't intend to weigh into that the, weigh into that debate deeply, but you are seeing for the first time things like cybersecurity and cyber infrastructure included in these traditional notions of what it takes uh, for, for government and private sector to work together to build the, the successful successfully build the things that underpin our our commerce and underpin the way that we work and operate together so i think those kinds of things are key i think scale and more of them are what's going to prove ultimately if we're able to do this successfully or not 
Well, I, th I think that argument, whether it's infrastructure or not, is is quite interesting because it, uh, it it seems to not be infrastructure until it breaks, and then everybody agrees that it is right. infrastructure uh, and that it, it needs right. uh, needs some focus. Uh, speaking of this focus, you you mentioned uh, you know just. Recently, we, you had the virtual conference to launch uh, the Global Center for Cybersecurity that uh, it was called Net Measure. Tell us a little bit about what happened at that virtual conference and, and what you hope to see out of the, uh, the Global Center. Yeah, so we, when we think about what we're trying to do at the Global Center, we organize what we do around three core pillars. Uh, the first pillar is collaboration. We're trying to help organizations and governments, especially in the cyber domain, work better together. The second and really the central pillar for us is on workforce development. That's, we've talked a little bit about that already, but that's a model where we start by democratizing access to careers through apprenticeship and things that directly reach out to communities that are often overlooked in this space and try to help take advantage really of, of untapped resources of bright minds that often don't see cyber as a career future for them. Some of that comes from the way we talk about it and the way we think of, you know, cyber as this dark art that's only practicable by a handful of people. In reality, there's tons of opportunities that are available there, and we, we really try to democratize those both low barriers to entry, internship programs and apprenticeship programs, stepping up through certificate programs taught by instructors at universities, stepping up ultimately to degree programs that people can participate in while they are already in the workforce. And then the third pillar is focused on innovation, and that's, that's the pillar I've spent probably most of this conversation talking about, talking about the way that we're trying to partner with innovators and leverage the innovation network in the St. Louis region, but also beyond to help more people with great ideas who want to join this fight and help solve this problem, get access to the capital, and then also the opportunity to talk to security leaders and validate their ideas and validate the market fit so that they can be successful. Those are the three pillars, and those three pillars were sort of built into our launch event. So we had a great group of, of CISOs and security leaders that represented the, the diversity of our field and what we want that to look more like, talking about opportunities for diverse talent to be able to join, not just join the field, but become leaders in the field. Then we had a series of, of discussions or keynotes from innovators who are part of what we are doing and have partnered with us, taking some really, really next generation, next level kind of thinking towards this cybersecurity problem and talking about their approach there. And then we concluded with a, a panel of a really luminary leaders we're honored to have join us in, in this discussion through a different partner of ours, I'm called 2020 Partners, who was able to bring the likes of, like I mentioned, Chris Inglis, as, as well as uh, General Jim Clapper, the former director of national intelligence, as well as several other leaders from some of our UK partners like like Steve Hill and Patty McGinnis and, and Phil Riley, who is a CIA veteran, all come together and lead a conversation with us about what it takes to do security well from their perspective and what public-private partnerships might look like if we worked in a way that was more collaborative, better fit government and private sector together. So that was the focus of what we talked about at our launch. Of course, virtual launches, a little different, but everything's a little different during these COVID times. But really great conversation started from that and something we're really excited to build on at the Global Center for Cybersecurity at Cortex. Well, I would imagine that if you had a cyber, uh, a virtual launch and you did it on Zoom with, this, with a group of uh, cybersecurity professionals, there was absolutely zero opportunity for Zoom bombing that you had all the protocols <laughs> in place to ensure that it was a, a, a safe environment and a, a secure environment. Uh, Josh, I wanted to ask you one additional question related to those pillars, and that's on the workforce side. And this goes back to this discussion 
of uh, is cybersecurity uh, a government problem? Is it a, is it is it related to infrastructure? If it is viewed as infrastructure, I mean, a lot of the workforce efforts that have really allowed our comp- our country to grow have been workforce efforts directed toward improving our infrastructure. If we think about uh, the the interstate, you know, initiative uh, back in the middle of the last century, uh, or what we're one, what the current presidential administration is thinking about related to. Uh, uh, green jobs. Uh, there are on this infrastructure side, cybersecurity can play this a similar role. And a lot of the jobs that we've seen in infrastructure in the past have not required formal four-year education. They've been considered much more vocational type training or short-term training. Does cyber offer that same type of opportunity for short-term certificate programs so people can get employed and working a lot faster? Yeah, it, it does. And that is such a critical point that you're, you're raising here, because if you think about it, sort of the, the, the paradox, if you're interested in cyber, you have two choices. You can join the good guy side or the bad guy side. If you want to join the bad guy side, it's about $50, 50 euros. It's about a half hour or an hour investment in watching some YouTube videos and training. You need access to the Internet and use that $50 to buy a malware toolkit or something, and you can start phishing people. It's about as democratized as you can get. Nobody cares what race you are, what gender you are, your sexual orientation. They don't care where in the world you are. You can do it that easily. And on the good guy side, traditionally the approach has been a longer lead time. It usually requires a a four-year degree, sometimes an advanced degree. It usually requires a lot of experience stacked up on top of that. requires a bunch of certificates and other things which are ever-changing. I think we really see that as something that will need to change, and we want to be on the forefront of changing it. So we've partnered with several not-for-profits who already have a great track record of doing apprenticeship and certificate-based programs, usually on the scale of several months to, well, all of them less than a year, um, and providing opportunities for all of the partners in our ecosystem, our platform at the Global Center, to be able to contribute to the core requirements they need people to graduate with out of those apprenticeship programs. And then once you, you do that, somebody can start an entry-level job in cybersecurity and join the fight. But then there's still opportunities for progressive growth, which is where I mentioned our certificate programs, our university partners build on that foundation with our partners in our, in our university model, but also amongst the employers that work with us and really help grow those that broader cadre, that diverse cadre of people that we're bringing into the workforce, help them grow so they don't just stay in entry-level roles, but they have every opportunity to be leaders in the field. Well, we're only going to hear more about cybercrime in the coming years. It's increased 600% in 2020, and as we mentioned in this interview, it's been in the news recently. We thank Josh Jaffe, the president of the Global Center for Cybersecurity at Cortex, for joining us. Thanks, Josh. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much, guys. St. Louis Innovation with Michael and Travis. Nothing impossible on KMOX. The CEO of the St. Louis area's largest public company, Centene. CEO Michael Nidor told a health industry publication that he's embarrassed by Missouri legislators bucking the will of the voters and not approving Medicaid, and he's still thinking about moving the headquarters to North Carolina. He kept coming back to the idea of leaving, and he does have this big new headquarters that's... uh going to be very impressive when it's finished in North Carolina. That's health payer specialist reporter Gail Scott, who we talked with. He really sees this as a constitutional issue. I think he's referring to your state's constitution. And I guess that's going to go to litigation, whether um, your legislature can overturn uh, something that the voters approved. 
you know, he's kind of morally outraged on one hand, but he's also a very good businessman and he has concerns. And Greater St. Louis Inc. CEO Jason Hall says the move to not expand Medicaid was not pro-business. And when KMOX asked if not funding it makes his job of promoting Missouri more difficult. We want to be a community with a future and we want to include all of our residents in that. Here we have before us clear priority advances the Ferguson Commission, creates jobs, provides health care. Yes, that is making my job more difficult when we're trying to move this community forward every day. Travis, this comes after the Centene CEO last year threatened the same thing because of crime. Yeah, and you know, we're, here we have uh, the state making decisions that aren't pro-business, but they're also not pro-people because the people had voted for this to move forward. So the question is, who does our state serve? Uh, and I, I think it's great that some of our, uh, you know, more, more powerful CEOs are holding people's feet to the fire. Let's hope this turns out uh, positively and that Centene remains in the region. Yeah, we'll continue to watch it. And, uh, you know, he mentioned in that interview with health payer specialist, the reporter said he talked all about that new campus in North Carolina, but they just built a couple of skyscrapers in Clayton. She says he didn't mention those during the interview. I think more to come. Absolutely more to come. Well, he mentioned crime. He mentioned uh, Medicaid expansion. What's next? We'll bring it strike out. We'll bring it to you when we find out right here on Nothing Impossible. Thanks so much for joining us. Tune in next week and make sure you check out the podcast on odyssey.com. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. Back clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t